0: Community Alliance with Family Farmers and the Farmers Guild present the Farmer's Beat podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Welcome to Episode 4. My name is Kaylee Fireizel. I'm an organic farmer, work at Calf and the Farmers Guild, and I am the host of these episodes where we hear directly from small family farmers throughout California, getting the real information and stories behind the food we grow and eat. In this series, we pay particular attention to the innovative work small-scale farmers are doing to keep their food safe to eat and share techniques farmer to farmer. In this episode, we visit with Stephanie Stevens, who runs Red Shed Farm with her husband in Penn Valley, California. They specialize in growing jalapeno peppers and making hot sauce. Peppers just stood out right away.
1: I already knew I didn't want to be a mixed produce farmer. That's not really my skill set, especially since I don't have the land to have that scale and sell enough to make a profit. So I knew I wanted to grow one thing and I wanted to grow it well. Right now it's just jalapenos and we really enjoy growing them. I like to say that they have a lot of
0: personality. If you listen to the first three episodes in this series, you will know that we focused on raw produce food safety. In this episode, we learn more about value-added product food safety, which is important to know about as more and more produce farms diversify their product offerings and make value-added products. Stephanie has had to learn all about the complicated world of food permitting for value-added products and wants to pay it forward sharing her knowledge with other farmers. She also shares with us why peppers claimed her heart, and we follow her as she makes hot sauce.
1: We are getting ready to chop up all of our peppers. So we're going to cut off the tops and leave all the flesh inside and cut them in half. We sterilize the whole kitchen, so we clean it with like a degreaser or a detergent, and then we bleach everything. And we also clean and sterilize everything that we use for the preparations of the knife and the cutting board and, yeah, virtually everything that comes in contact with the food gets sterilized.
0: Stephanie has had a somewhat surprising path to farming. I was a ballet dancer before I was a
1: farmer, and I knew that I wanted to farm, I think, my whole life, but I always kind of had it on the back burner, and I knew my career as a dancer would be really short. And I just decided at one point I wasn't happy and I really wanted to pursue farming now. So my then boyfriend and I, now husband, moved to the foothills because of the agricultural community up here. It was really vibrant and that appealed to us. Then we had to figure out the type of crop we wanted to grow. And I've always loved hot sauce, been obsessed with spicy food my whole life. My mom's side immigrated from China and some of them were farmers, so uh, when they found out that I was farming I think they kind of were perplexed as to why I wouldn't want to go back to that type of lifestyle because many of them left China to have better opportunities here and you know they became doctors and accountants and things like that and um, I think they were a little shocked. But at the same time, they kind of understood it wasn't a huge surprise. I've always kind of had this desire to get back to the land, which kind of came more from my dad's side, my husband's side. He's Mexican, and our recipes are kind of more influenced by his family, actually. But we've done a lot of revising and troubleshooting and testing and changing, so it's definitely our own now.
0: Stephanie also had a certain kind of wisdom about herself that gave her confidence in taking on the endeavor of a value-added product.
1: I knew that I loved peppers and I knew I loved hot sauce, but I also came at it from a very systematic angle. I knew that I wasn't the best farmer in the area. Um, I just know that there's so many farmers up here and they just grow Beautiful, amazing produce. I knew that I couldn't compete if I was just making or growing lettuces or beets or things like that. One thing that I'm very good at is paperwork and dealing with tedious tasks that are required to get certain permits associated with value-added vending. So I kind of went that route on purpose and I knew that that would kind of limit my competition as well because there's more barriers to entry with value-added farming and products When I talk to other people, I think the food safety plan can be much more intimidating to farmers because it's just generally not our area of expertise as like a population where there's a reason why people want to farm and it's because they don't want to deal with paperwork. But unfortunately, even as farmers, if you want to have a successful business, you do have to have someone do it on your team. If not you, hopefully
0: your partner might be good at it. Right now, Stephanie's company is very small scale. They have a work trade agreement with friends who let them grow peppers on their land, which is about a quarter acre. And they rent a commercial kitchen from somebody else. When Stephanie first started looking into how to begin her business, it was anything but easy and obvious.
1: So the first thing I did when I was trying to figure out how to go about the food safety side was like most people I googled it to just get a big picture idea of what might be necessary and unfortunately it's very hard to find one resource that walks you through the entire process for your unique product. So I went to my county environmental health departments and I work with them for my other job so I, I was pretty confident they would be able to Steer me in the right direction, and you know, they're, they're very helpful. But I learned that it's also governed by the state, which I kind of figured might be the case. But I, I hoped that hot sauce might be captured under cottage food permits, and I learned very quickly no, that is not the case, it's a higher risk item. So you have to acquire a processed food registration permit. And that was very intimidating to me. But now, having gone through the process, it's really not as bad as it sounds. It can feel very overwhelming when you first send in your application and they send you back kind of a list of what you should have
0: in your food safety plan because it's very extensive. Due to this exact situation, CAF and UC Extension teamed up last summer and created three different resources on this subject. Two are timelines that show the steps involved and approximate amount of time it takes to obtain a processed food registration permit or a cannery license. There's also a webinar where we explain the details on those resources. Both are linked in the show notes. I loved my inspector, and they're very
1: responsive, but, you know, they have a huge caseload, so they can't spend, like, a ton of time walking you through the process. You really have to take the initiative to do the research yourself. And if you don't, you're just probably not going to be able to
0: make it through. You might need to get help from someone else who's done it. As Stephanie moved through educating herself on food safety regulations for value-added hot sauce, she came up against cottage food permits versus processed food registration permits. Let me explain that because it can be complicated. The cottage food permit is the simplest value-added food safety permit a business can get in California. It's also very limited on the products you are allowed to make under it. There's a list of 33 approved products currently posted on the California Department of Public Health's website. You also have to make the products in your own home kitchen and cannot sell over $50,000 in annual sales. There's a few more detailed parts of the cottage food permit depending upon where you sell. While the cottage food permit is a state law, each county in California implements a law. As Stephanie mentioned, you should go talk to your county's environmental health office to find out the specific details that apply to your local area. In Stephanie's case, Hot Sauce is not one of the 33 approved products on the cottage food law list, so she could not get that permit for her business. Instead, Stephanie had to go to the next step up permit for value added products. This permit is called the Processed Food Registration Permit or PFR. The PFR permit is more involved to obtain than the cottage food permit, but it provides more flexibility to the farmer or value-added product producer. The PFR is needed for higher-risk foods that are not on the cottage food approved list. It is enforced entirely by the California State Public Health Department, so there's no county-level involvement.
1: So I was very disappointed to hear that because cottage food, you know, you can do it in your own home and... um. It's much more cost-effective for a beginning business, and the PFR, Processed Food Registration Permit, costs, I think, somewhere around $350 to $400, and that's a lot of money for a small business. So right now, I'm finished cutting up the peppers, and we're gonna lay them on a baking sheet to put in the oven. So I put them face down so that the flesh can be um, cooked. I like it to get a little blackened for flavor, and it sometimes depends on the oven, but we usually leave them in there until they turn like a nice um, bright green color, which is usually somewhere between 20 to 40 minutes, depending on the oven, Um, and we like to see a little blackened on the top as well, and whatever isn't blackened will sometimes put a torch to it to kind of simulate uh, a roasted effect.
0: The PSR permit requires the kitchen where the processing is done to be inspected before the product is made. To prepare for that inspection, the business making the product needs to create a food safety plan that explains how the people making the product are going to reduce possible food safety risks. The processing industry refers to this as HACCP, or Hazard Analysis Critical Control Points. Basically, what that means is that you map out the flow of your product through the production area and determine where there could be a reasonable chance for it to get contaminated. For example, if you're canning a product to make it shelf stable, then a critical part of that process is taking a pH test of the product before you can it to make sure it's below the pH it needs to be. Stephanie prepared a food safety plan for her product to get ready for her PSR inspection. The whole
1: inspection took probably an hour and a half to two hours they come in and they look at your kitchen and they're just kind of trying to make sure that basic food safety standards are met. Like your cooler, your walk-in is at the minimum temperature and, you know, there's no like rat traps. (laughs) Your garbage is in the right place. The walls aren't porous. The floors aren't porous, things like that. If you don't own your kitchen, they're also going to ask... The proprietor for like water inspection, if you're not hooked up to the city's water, if you're on like a shared well or some type of system like that, they're going to want the well reports. They want to know who your pest control provider is. So those are things to keep on your radar and you want to make sure that you have them available because if they can't sign off on it, then you you have to send it to them later and that can slow down your approval process. But if you do pass the inspection, you can start processing your product that day, essentially, but you don't get your like hard copy permit for a couple months after because they're a little busy, mm-hmm. but it's kind of difficult if you wanna do something like a farmer's market, because then your county is gonna want a copy of the paperwork and you might not be able to start attending those types of events until that hard copy arrives so my food safety plan i tried to focus on the critical control points so points in the production where the food could become contaminated or spoil in transport and things like that so really what you're trying to do is follow your product from the beginning to end to ensure that it reaches the customer in a safe form and isn't going to make them sick. Now we're going to take them out. And then we put them into a pressure cooker with vinegar and salt.
0: One big misconception with the PFR permit is that you can change locations once you get it. That's not true. Once you receive your PFR, it is linked to one unique kitchen, so if you decide to switch locations, you have to go through the entire application process again. Stephanie learned this the hard way.
1: Midway through the year, I wanted to change kitchens. I figured that the PFR would be good for another commercial kitchen, but that is not the case. You have to do an entirely different permit for your unique location. Your permit at one kitchen is not good for another kitchen. You have to do it all over again. It's really your responsibility to make sure your business is compliant. It's not related to whether or not the kitchen is certified or approved for commercial use in your county. So you're responsible for filling out the application, renewing it every year, and undergoing inspections. So you really have to think about where you want to be, And I would suggest taking the time to select the correct kitchen for you. So you're going to want to take into account how often you have to go there, who you're working with, you know, whether or not you like the conditions, if the space is big enough or appropriate for your product, because you might feel pressured to just find a place and get it done quickly. But once you fill out the paperwork and have them inspect, it's a pain to change it. So you're going to want to... Think about that from the beginning so that you can just let it renew rather than having to pay for a completely new application process and a new inspection because, once again, you're responsible for that. The kitchen is not.
0: In our work with farmers across the state, one common comment I get from farmers making value-added products is that they just have to make them in a certified kitchen. Hopefully, after what Stephanie has just mentioned, folks realize that there's various types of certifications a kitchen can have. It's all dependent on the product or products you are making and what type of permit they require. The kitchen requirements for products made under the cottage food permit are somewhat different than for the processed food registration permit. There's also one other type of value-added product production permit that a business may need and that's called the cannery license. If you're considering making shelf stable products in the highest food safety risk category, such as hot sauce, salsas, and pepper jams, then you'll need to have a cannery license. We do not talk about that in this podcast, but there's more resources on that license in the show notes.
1: So now we're going to blend it all. Yeah, first we sterilize all the bottles with um, what people often use for brewing beer. So we spray it inside the bottle and we let them drain upside down on um, what is also used for brewing generally as a bottle rack. So now we are going to hand bottle everything with a funnel. And then after we fill it with the sauce, we cap it and we put the label on.
0: One other permit to know about is the TFF, or Temporary Food Facility Permit. If you plan on selling your value-added product at a farmer's market or other event booth, such as a craft fair, then the county will require you to have a TFF permit in place. This is done at the county level, so just be sure to check with your county environmental health office. Each county may implement the TFF slightly differently, so see how it works in your local area. Up to now, we've discussed the various county and state-level food safety regulations for value-added products. The new Food Safety Modernization Act, or FISMA, also has new federal rules for processed food products. It's likely that most farmers would be exempt from these processing regulations in FSMA, which are in the Preventative Controls, or PC, rule. If you're selling more than half of your value-added products directly to customers via online, a farm stand, a community-supported agriculture program, or another method, then it's likely that your business would qualify for a full exemption from the PC rule. This is because your business would be classified as a retail food establishment. You can learn more about this in the show notes and in the resources that CAF made with UC Extension.
1: As a small business owner, you're the accountant and, you know, you're the bookkeeper, you're doing the taxes and you're out there growing the crops and you're bottling it all by yourself. And you just get really tired. You get fatigued and you want to give up because you don't feel like the rewards are that great. But, you know, the first five years you shouldn't even expect to really make a profit necessarily. So you just kind of have to hang in there, and that can be hard. And in the end, I know I'm not going to stop, not just because I've put so much work into it, but because I can see what it can be. And I really want to get to the point where I can maybe start employing people and um, have my own property and my own kitchen and, you know, share what I've learned with other farmers. Maybe make it easier for other farmers and let them use my property someday or let them use the kitchen for like free until they make a profit. Because I feel like I've invested so much into just the educational aspect that if I were to give up now, um, it would be kind of a loss for, you know myself and for other people who could potentially benefit from it three four years ago when i was first conceiving of this business and I, I never would have thought that i could have gotten this far you know that seemed like such a huge obstacle to tackle but it's just really cool to have an idea in your head with like the logo and the bottles and you know how it's gonna look and then hold your first product and it has the logo you want and it has like the labeling and it conforms to state standards and it has shiny shrink wrap on it. It's very, very rewarding, even though you know that your margins aren't great. It's still very cool to see your idea come to life and see other people enjoy it. And then we put shrink wrap on the top so that, you know, people can tell that it hasn't been tampered with. And we've devised, um a small-scale system for this. So we use a hairdryer. We just place it on the top. Yeah, we just slip it over with a little lip on the top. Beyond just, you know, food safety, it also kind of gives a nice polished look to the bottle. And then we put them in their boxes and store them away. And that's it.
0: Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF, and the Farmers Guild merged organizations in early 2017 so that together we could reach all California family farmers with one united voice. CAF's programming and policy work has existed for 40 years. The Farmers Guild will now assume the role of membership, outreach, events, and the chapter system for CAF. If you're curious about things you learned in this episode, like where to find all the permit forms Stephanie mentioned, head over to our show notes at calf.org. Backslash Farmers Beat, that's B E E T, where we have links, resources, and photographs. Also, follow us on Instagram at The Farmers Guild to stay up to date on what new episodes are released and see more pictures from farms featured in this podcast. This podcast would not exist without funding from the National Farmers Union and specifically their local food safety collaborative. We thank them for their support of this work and helping real farmers share their food safety tips to other farmers. Are you a farmer interested in being on a future podcast or have a question related to this podcast? You can contact us at thefarmersbeat at calf.org. Thank you for listening and join us for the next episode from CAF and the Farmers Guild, sharing farm-fresh insights right from the field and giving voice to sustainable agriculture since 1978.